Well, I want to welcome everybody who's joining us online as well as those who are in person. Normally, I would also be welcoming those who are with us at West Fort Worth and our South Lake campus, but uh, today we are doing something a little different in our series. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn uh, at NRH or those online to uh, John chapter 3, the third chapter of the Gospel of John, and that's where we're going to be in a moment. But while you're turning there, um, I want to uh, just, just say a quick word about a very important event that was rescheduled because of the weather this last week. So uh, we have an interest night coming up for, uh, for a potential Dallas campus. Part of our vision over the next five years is that we believe God's calling us to plant a fourth and fifth campus. And so uh, we are getting a lot of interest and in going through a discernment process about potentially starting a Dallas campus. Nothing's final. We're holding it open-handed before the Lord. But on February 15th, that's a Tuesday night at 7 p.m., we have rescheduled our interest night that was originally going to be this last Thursday. So uh, to everybody listening to the sound of my voice, if you know anybody in Dallas who might be interested in being part of a Hills campus, uh, maybe they're looking for a church home, uh, or maybe, uh, maybe they've moved on that side of town or recently moved, please, please get the word out about this interest night. We would love to see uh, as many people there as possible who might be interested in being part of what God might be doing for a fourth campus in Dallas. Uh, We'll keep you updated on on what's happening uh, with that as uh, the months and weeks go on, because we really don't know, uh, but we are praying, and we'd ask you to join us in praying about February 15th at 7 p.m. Now, the reason I'm not talking to South Lake and West Fort Worth right now is because we're doing something different across this series. If you're new to our church, I'm so glad you're with us. We are one church in three locations. Uh, We have a campus here in NRH and South Lake and West Fort Worth. And uh, the vast majority of the time, uh, what's preached at NRH is broadcast to South Lake and West Fort Worth. But over these next three weeks, we have live preaching at all three campuses. And that's going to be part of a series we're calling Questionable Faith. So myself and two other ministers, Emmanuel Dominguez and E.J. Brown, are going to be rotating between campuses uh, as, we, as we unpack this series. Now, pause for a second, and I want to talk to some people who are podcasting this later uh, or maybe watching on YouTube. Um, what I want you to do, if you go to West Fort Worth, if you go to South Lake and you're listening to this, uh, and it is, uh, it's the week following uh, February 7th or onward, spoiler alert, this sermon is coming to your campus. So if you want to hear this for the first time in person, stop listening, go to our YouTube page, and you'll be able to see the messages preached by EJ and Emmanuel. All right, back to talking to people who are right here. So this is what happens at a multi-site church. But... I'm excited for what God is going to do over these next three weeks. I was praying with, uh, with EJ and Emmanuel yesterday about this. Here's the thing. The reason we're excited about this series, Questionable Faith, is because there is no mature faith that hasn't experienced some kind of challenge. Anybody who's been a Christian longer than a month, say amen. And the challenges we face, they come in all shapes and sizes. Challenges to our faith could be the storms of life. They could be the doubts we face. They can be the insecurities we feel as believers in society. But 
whether you are 20-something or 70-something, we all face moments when our faith is called into question. Whether, whether you are still in high school or whether when they printed your high school graduation photo, it was in black and white, all of us need this message because we all face times where faith feels questionable and where we struggle to get our mind or even our mouths around why it's still worth holding on to. Speaking of uh, get, struggling to get your mind around something, I have one quick story and a video from this last week uh, of the snow days. I hope uh, everybody stayed warm and safe. It was certainly better than last year. But I have a, uh, a five-year-old son named Finn, a two-year-old daughter named Imogen. And, uh, and so uh, when I, we were talking to them about the snow days, uh, my son, especially Finn, was very excited because he wanted to build a snowman. He was talking about it and talking about it. And so we tried Thursday, and the snow was still really dry and coming apart. But as, as it started to melt and get a stickier, we went out on Friday, and we built a snowman. And I, I was filming this for family, but I want to show you a short clip of when he and I were talking about what we were going to name this snowman. Watch this. So does this snowman have a name? Um, Mr. Rob. Mr. Rob the Snowman. Okay. Well, well, I'll call him Frosty the Snowman. Oh, okay. Frosty the Snowman, whose nickname is Rob. No. <laughs> it's Frosty the Snowman. What's a jolly happy soul? What's a pun? You say it. <laughs> All right, now. I show you that because number one, it is objectively adorable. And number two, because this message is going to address a corn cob pipe part of our faith. A part of our faith that sometimes is difficult for us to articulate or even want to talk about. And when the topic comes up, we might be willing to kind of look at somebody else and go, you say it. And that is some of the social pressure and even insecurity that we can feel in Christ, as Christians in today's world. I, I heard a, uh, a church planner describe how you could kind of look at different regions of the country based on three different zones, a red zone, a yellow zone, and a green zone. Green zones would be part of the country where uh, faith might be seen as some kind of a social advantage or benefit, where being a person of a Christian faith would be admired. Broadly speaking, this church planner said, you know, you could call lots of parts in the South as potential green zones. Yellow zones would be parts of the country where somebody who's a Christian, it's not necessarily an advantage, but it's just kind of a, a net neutral. Faith is reasonably tolerated and even respected. Meanwhile, you can predict red zones are those parts of the country and cities where being a Christian is actually a social disadvantage because of how Jesus and his church are perceived and even disdained. This church planner was in a city uh, in the Northeast and said over the last over you know, 15 or so years that they'd been in this city, they said they'd watched their city go from a yellow zone to a red zone. Now, for a moment, take that, those, those zones and don't lay them over the map of a country, but think about your neighborhood. Think about your workplace. Think about your classroom and classmates and the family that you go visit for the holidays or see on the weekends. And when you see their faces, what zones do they fit into? 
Do they admire somebody who has a, a Christian conviction and lifestyle? Are they willing to at least tolerate it? Or do they struggle to understand or show any respect? When I think about my life, when I think about my family tree, when I think about friends from high school or college days, I'll confess over the years, the green zones have receded and the yellow and red zones have grown. To many people today, let's be honest, following Jesus is questionable at best. Now that was certainly the posture of a man named Nicodemus. I want to take you through the three-act saga of his appearance in the Gospel of John as his three appearances give us kind of a helpful frame of reference for this conversation. So as we go through these three acts, everybody live at NRH say Act 1. It's John chapter 3. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. Now, in the uh, Cliff Notes version of the story, we just learned very quickly that Nicodemus is wealthy, that he is religiously devout, and that he is politically powerful. He's part of an exclusive religious group, the Pharisees. These were some of the most religiously devout and respected in the community. But he's part of an even more exclusive group, the Jewish ruling council, also known as the Sanhedrin. They were the most influential religious group in all the country. And Nicodemus is among them, the elite. And he comes to Jesus at night. Now, there's different theories as to why that is, but in a little bit, I want to show you why I think Nicodemus went at night, because he didn't want to be seen with Jesus. Jesus was not wealthy, Jesus was not yet politically influential, and Jesus did not have a good reputation, so association with Jesus, being seen with him, would be costly for someone like Nicodemus, but it doesn't stop him in Act 1 from what we'll call seeking out this might be the first paragraph on Nicodemus's Wikipedia bio. Nicodemus wants to know Jesus better, but he doesn't want anybody to know that. So under the cover of night, he seeks Jesus out for a conversation about who Jesus is. That conversation doesn't go at all like he expects it to, but he still leaves with some sincere interest in this rabbi Jesus and in what he says. And we know that because the next time he shows up, the stakes are even higher. Everybody live at NRH say Act 2. We go to John chapter 7. And in John 7, Jesus' influence is growing. Crowds are flocking to hear his teaching. And the religious elite are furious about it. The Pharisees among whom Nicodemus is a member, they are sick and tired of Jesus getting so much attention because he's threatening their political influence. And so they decide to get some armed guards and they send them to go arrest Jesus while he's preaching. They wait and the armed guards return, but empty-handed. And the religious elite are furious to find out the reason they didn't arrest Jesus is because the armed guards showed up, they hear Jesus preaching, and then they're just enamored with what he has to say so they don't touch him. 
They're so angry. They're at this fever pitch. And all of a sudden, Nicodemus, among his peers and co-workers, Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he's been doing? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it. You'll find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. So what just happens in Act 2 is that Nicodemus barely, barely raises his voice, but just gives the Jewish equivalent of, hey guys, like innocent until proven guilty, right? And the room turns on him. They reference Galilee. That's the region where Jesus is from. It would be like saying, what, are you from his hometown? You his old, old next-door neighbor? Why are you defending him? And we see Nicodemus in this moment going from seeking out to speaking up. And speaking up left this man socially exposed. I remember uh, it was in theater class when we were backstage and, and talking some, and all of a sudden, I don't remember how, but the conversation steered its way to faith. And I don't know what came over me, and I don't remember exactly what I said, but it was my first time outside of church circles. I'm raised as a preacher's kid, and all of a sudden, I'm speaking up for the first time. Now, I, I didn't give some, you know, sort of, verbal gospel tract or anything like that, but I just said something about my Christian faith. And I remember that one of the older students who was backstage with us turned and looked at me. And this was a student that I had looked up to. They were great at acting. They were funny and confident. And they looked and they kind of smiled and then said, the only reason you believe any of that is because your parents told you to. And the way they said it in front of others, I had never felt smaller Speaking up comes with an inherent risk. And when our voice is in the minority, we can end up feeling the way I felt that day, which was, did it even matter for me to say anything at all? I think that's probably how Nicodemus ended up feeling. Because eventually, the Sanhedrin got their way. Eventually, Jesus was arrested. Eventually, Jesus is rushed through a mock trial. He is sentenced to death. And then even the Roman governor carries out the sentence so that the centurions take Jesus and then they parade him through the streets, take him outside the city gates and crucify him. And throughout all four gospel accounts, the religious elite are there to see and gloat through all of it. Now, maybe Nicodemus was a dissenting vote, but it's likely that he was still there for the whole thing. That he watched as Jesus was condemned to die. He heard the crowds shout, crucify. He watched as the nails were driven into Jesus' wrists, heard Jesus breathe in agonized groans as he hung and died. Everybody say act three. It's John 19. Jesus has died. And later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate 
for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. This passage is why I believe that when Nicodemus first went to Jesus in John 3, he went at night because he didn't want to be seen. Because the other man that he worked with to help bury Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea, in the Gospels of Mark and Luke, Joseph is noted as being among the Sanhedrin. And so I I think there's a pretty plausible case to be made that, that Joseph and Nicodemus together were secret supporters of Jesus who were afraid of the life-threatening ramifications of having anything to do with him publicly. But we see here when Nicodemus sees what has happened to Jesus, I don't know what it was inside him. Maybe he already had a conviction this was wrong or maybe seeing this man that he knew was from God be killed in this awful, shameful way. Something happened in him that he goes from seeking out to speaking up to sacrificing in his relationship with Jesus. If it was unwise to be seen with Jesus back when he was alive, Now he's been convicted and crucified by the Roman Empire, so being seen with his corpse is socially insane. But Nicodemus is there, and he sacrifices his reputation. He sacrifices what others will think of him. He sacrifices potentially his own job. He sacrifices his honor in order to honor Jesus. And even sacrifices his resources. 75 pounds of these spices was an extravagant financial gift. Now, yes, Nicodemus was wealthy, but this, this was so much that in the research I did, this is comparable to how some royalty were prepared for burial. Jesus, killed as a criminal, who we worship as a resurrected king, was given a king's burial because of this man. And these three appearances from Nicodemus are a helpful way of framing the conversation when we talk about how do we, how do we relate to the world when sometimes the world does not want to hear what we have to say about Jesus? Because in Nicodemus' world, a sincere relationship with Jesus was cause for potential embarrassment or worse. And that is increasingly the reality today. Now, our reasons for embarrassment are probably a little bit different than Nicodemus's. Why do we feel some of that tension? To try to articulate it, here's a few reasons I believe that not only I've I've personally wrestled with, but as I've talked with others, these are reasons for embarrassment as Christians. The first reason is that we're embarrassed by some of the biblical Christian positions on some social and ethical issues. 
It's no secret. So much of what Jesus taught and the New Testament writers preached goes against the grain of what is promoted and celebrated in society today. And when we feel that, that kind of collision, we feel a tension and even potentially an embarrassment based on how Christian positions are caricatured by others who criticize them. The second reason is that some, some of us find ourselves embarrassed by the actions of people who claim to be Christians. There's an author and pastor named John Tyson who, who put this really well. He just hit the nail on the head for me that, that when we're embarrassed of how people that maybe we don't know or, or, or people who get, who get uh, attention in headlines or, or, or online, when, when somebody says, well, man, I don't want to be a Christian because that seems to be what being a Christian is like, we find ourselves, John Tyson says, in a place of having to distance and reposition ourselves from other people who say they're Christians. You ever felt that tension socially? That, that when somebody brings up what they said or them, we find ourselves saying, hey, I'm, I'm not them. I, I, that may be how they follow Jesus, but that's not how I follow Jesus. That, that may be what they say, but that's not what I say. And the third reason is that reasonably we can be pretty embarrassed by the past and present failures of the church whether it's the latest scandal that highlights hypocrisy or the well-documented history of corruption and violence and abuse among people who are supposed to be shepherds and protectors. All of these, and you could add to the list, have caused an inner insecurity and a shift in how Christians are perceived in our world today. For those of you who have been Christians for decades, you, you've, you've felt this. You've lived through this. I told you, I, I grew up as a preacher's kid. And, and speaking with, painting with a broad brush, back in the 80s and 90s, I mean, Christians, you know, they were kind of seen by, by people who weren't Christians. Just the, the, the caricature was basically like Christians are sort of moral people who are cheesy and boring. You know, Christians were kind of like, they were wet blankets at a party because they didn't know how to have fun. But they were still trying to be good people. And today, decades later, that, that narrative has changed so much where when I have some of the most difficult conversations with people close to me or people that I meet who have issues with the church or with Jesus, we no longer have the moral high ground in our society. Instead, I hear Christianity being criticized as power hungry or repressive or oppressive and even sometimes described as an, ob an obstacle to what kind of society people want to have. So the question is, for us, what do we do with that tension? Because that tension is not going away as best we can tell. It's been there since the earliest Christians who went out trying to witness and live as followers of Jesus in what was a red zone. The entire Roman Empire was a red zone. 
And here we are today increasingly feeling like, depending on who we talk to or who we are around, there is this distance and tension. Well, in order to address this, part of what we have to face is that the Bible clearly teaches Jesus deserves nothing less than our total allegiance. No matter what. No matter what other people think, no matter what society says, Jesus deserves our total allegiance. That's not just what the Bible teaches. That's what Jesus himself said. In the, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus said, I tell you, whoever publicly acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. That no matter what, we're called to acknowledge and not be ashamed of Jesus Christ. And at the same time, there's a temptation to let that just be a one-dimensional application. We could just finish the sermon right here. But the challenge is life has gotten increasingly complicated. We support missionaries who have to be covert in some ways in some parts of the world because where they're trying to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ, they, this isn't something you can just apply in a one-dimensional way. And for some of us, depending on where we work or, or the people that we're around, we feel a kind of tension. So the question is, how do we, how do we live in that tension? How do we try to be faithful and show allegiance to Christ in a way that still helps our witness? Well, I think, I think some, some of us have different strategies for how to deal with that tension. For some, they just embrace it and say, you know what? I'm, I, I'm just going to be me against the world. And kind of sometimes Christians become combative. They position themselves as culture warriors. Like, hey, we're in a fight, so man, let's go. Whatever the latest issue is, whatever, and they post about it, and they write about it, they'll argue about it. But long term, I think that erodes our witness. Other Christians can sometimes recede or accidentally end up in a Christian bubble. When they look around at, man, you talk about the people I'm, I live near or the people I work with, the people I talk to, the people I'm in relationship with, man, they're, they're all Christians. And we kind of end up in a little bit of a sort of kind of a, a, a secluded Christian gated community based on how we live our life. But I think the vast majority of us choose a plan that I'm going to call the be a good person plan. This is the Christian who's decided that since faith you know, it can be a really polarizing topic. And Christianity has got a lot of baggage that I don't really feel equipped to even talk about or deal with. So instead, here's my game plan. I'm going to let my private faith influence my public actions. Now, at, at surface level, that sounds like a pretty good plan, right? I'll just be a good person, try to live for my Christian values. But, you know, I, I don't want to push Jesus on anybody or make things awkward for friends or people at work or school. So I just don't talk about Jesus. I really think that this is the most, kind of the default way that a lot of us try and deal with this tension. And so people have a sincere faith, and yet it's still kind of secretive. But the, the challenge with that, that approach is, you know, it makes me think about this, this story that author Donald Whitney told. I've actually, I've shared this, it's been several years ago, but it's a story that's stuck in my head. He, he writes about this, this guy who, over the weekend, he went to, he went to a, a religious gathering and he heard the gospel for the very first time, heard about who Jesus was, what Jesus did for him, and he, he suddenly had this encounter with Christ and he came to faith. 
Well, he goes to work on Monday, and he doesn't know the be a good person plan. So when people ask him, hey, how was your weekend? What happened to you over the weekend? All of a sudden, he just, he just shares. And he just starts talking about his new faith and his conversion. Well, word kind of gets around in the office, and the boss eventually calls him into the office. And you would think the boss is calling him in to say, hey, uh, you know, respect whatever you believe, but in our workplace, that's not stuff we talk about. But actually, the boss calls him in to congratulate him. Say, I've been praying for you. I'm a Christian. I'm so glad. And this new believer looks at his boss. He goes, wait, you're a Christian? And the boss says, yeah. And the, young, and the, the new believer says, you're the reason I almost didn't become a Christian. <laughs> now, you would think that this new believer said that and then would say, because you're, I mean, you're just such a mean boss. You're, you're always blaming us and you take all the credit and you're, you're just not the kind of person I want to be. And I knew you were a Christian, so I never wanted to be like that. But that's not what this new believer said. He said, and you're, you're one of the best people that I know. Such an incredible boss. I mean, you just have such high integrity. You actually care about us as a team, as people. I wanted to be like you, but I didn't know you were a Christian. So I thought if you could be that person without Jesus, then I didn't need Jesus. Listen close. When we pick the be a good person plan, you can display the character of Christ in a way that might be very attractive, but if you never speak up, if you never talk about your faith, if you never name Jesus as your Lord around others, your good works might just as easily lead someone away from faith as towards it. Now, I've shared this story before, and so I already know some of the pushback. Hey, I, I cannot do that in my workplace. I would, I would lose my job. Hey, you know what? That, that, if I took that approach, that's actually going to drive people away because they're going to think I'm trying to force something. Look, I am not saying that you need to go lose your job tomorrow by breaking the rules. I'm not saying you need to force feed people your testimony. What I'm saying is that I would ask you that let the Holy Spirit help you evaluate the life that you are living, the people you are around, and my question is, are you speaking up? Or are you feeling that social tension and receding back from it? I did an audit of my life several months ago, and I realized I was in the Christian bubble. The only time I would get to talk to people who weren't Christians were either when I was getting food or when I was at church and somebody new came. And so I decided, you know what? I, I like playing basketball. I'm gonna, go, I'm gonna go play pickup in my neighborhood. There's cement courts. I got mid-30s knees. It's, it's not a good combination, but I was gonna go. And so I'm out there and I'm playing with, with, uh, with some of these, these just neighbors that I, didn't, I hadn't, hadn't even met before. And I'm talking with them and, and I end up sitting next to this, this younger guy who's college age and, and we're, we're waiting for the next game. And just as we're talking, he tells me about his upcoming semester. He's, he's going to be uh, going to this new school, moving away. And, and, and we talk and, and I could feel that moment of like, man, maybe I could say something. And the first thing that popped into my head was like, oh, that is just going to be such a buzzkill. I've got a good rapport with this guy. Like, this is going to make it awkward. Well, I didn't say anything then. We end up kind of finishing, and I'm staying on the court just shooting a little bit. And I notice he ends up sticking around, and I'm like, okay, Jesus, fine. <laughs> I walk over. And I'm like, hey, man, love talking to you. Man, I just love to pray with you about your new semester. How can I be praying for you? 
and it hung in the air for a second. And then he leaned in and he started talking with me and sharing a little bit. And I said, dude, I'd love to. I prayed with him real briefly. And I could tell he was like a little bit uncomfortable. Well, then I went and sat down and started getting ready to go. And all of a sudden he walked back over and he said, hey man. And he wanted to get my number so that we could talk more about faith. And I looked at that moment and I thought, man, I know what it feels like to have gotten shut down before. I know what it feels like to have people say, yeah, I don't think so. But, but am I willing to risk that in order to see what God might do? Because for each one of us, we have to realize showing total allegiance to Jesus might look different and it needs to be spirit led in different moments. But the thing is, you and I are not like Nicodemus. Because Nicodemus went seeking out Jesus, not knowing or understanding what was available from Jesus. And so to finish this message, we just need to look real quick at John 3. When Nicodemus comes, he says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God. And Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Objectively, that's weird. Like, just derails the conversation, does not even acknowledge what Nicodemus has to say. And Nicodemus is confused. How can someone be born when they are old? Which, by the way, Nicodemus would have been an old man. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. For Nicodemus, this was the corncob pipe moment. Jesus, what are you talking about? This doesn't make any sense. So Jesus tries again. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. What Jesus is getting at that Nicodemus struggled with, that sometimes we have to remember, as if you are a follower of Jesus listening to my voice, you're not like Nicodemus because Nicodemus was deciding, am I going to be associated with Jesus or not? Will I be affiliated or have any communion with Jesus? If you are a Christian, you're not making that call when you're at work or when you're at school or when you're in your neighborhood because if you're a follower of Jesus, you've already been born of the Spirit and you are now one with Christ. The reason that we can step into these awkward places and still be faithful to Christ is because He is with us. Yes, Jesus deserves our total allegiance, but you need to understand Jesus offers nothing less than total transformation. The source is not from your inner will or strength to be able to be a good witness for Christ. The source is from the Holy Spirit inside you. And some of us live with the false inner narrative of optional affiliation when you, Christian, are one with Christ. He's with you wherever you go. The way that the New Testament writers wrote about this, this birth of water in the Spirit they wrote that when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, that's Jesus. He saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. You don't just need a new strength, Christian, for your confidence out publicly. You need a new source. And the new source has come from your relationship with Jesus, which has put in you his spirit so that where you go, you can take the kingdom with you. 
And the Holy Spirit gives us wisdom to know in those different places, how do I do that in a wise way, in a shrewd way, in a contextualized way? But that means, man, the future that we look at, there will be more opportunities for embarrassment and awkwardness. But I want to be able to say like the Apostle Paul, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The insecurities may still be there that we wrestle with. Moments of embarrassment are still yet to come for God's people in an increasingly post-Christian world. But we serve a God who was willing to be affiliated with us, though it would cost him far more than embarrassment. He was willing to be called a friend of sinners when that was an insult. He was willing to be killed among criminals. And in his death, he was willing to do exactly what he told Nicodemus in John 3. The Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. And I think something happened in Nicodemus when he looked and saw Jesus lifted up on that cross realizing what Jesus was doing for him and for the world. And so for you and I, anything we face, man, it is, it is so worth it based on what Jesus has already done to bring union and salvation to us. And for the person who's listening who has yet to put your faith in Jesus, and you may be like Nicodemus, watching online and nobody knows you may be exploring Christianity and nobody's aware. Jesus is a patient savior. He loves you. He's inviting you. But there will come a moment, and maybe it's today, that you need to speak up and you need to sacrifice and lay down your way of life and find eternal life in him. Because the reason that we're willing to continue to spread this gospel is because we believe there is no other name by which someone can be saved. It is only Jesus Christ. And so, in his name, let's pray together. Oh, Jesus, thank you. Thank you, God, that you, that you came to earth and you experienced pain like us, embarrassment like us, shame like us. But you didn't just do it like us, God. You did it for us and died on a cross. We're put in a grave by Nicodemus and Joseph. But Jesus, we thank you that you rose from that grave, raised up a second time to give us hope beyond this life and to remind us that if we acknowledge you, you acknowledge us. Thank you, Jesus. I pray this in your powerful name. Amen.